0: I love the look of your microphone, Keith. Oh yeah, thanks. There's something very like old-fashioned kind of
1: about it. My co-host on the Next Picture Show, Jenna Yukowski, picked this out. She's like, "It's very '70s sci-fi." I think you. I think it's a, it's a good one for you. <laughs>
2: so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it floats around and talks to you in like a Robin Williams voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: That's a committed co-host
2: move, getting you a microphone that they think fits your your aura or something. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I think it was more coincidental. <laughs> but yeah. yeah
0: Hello, and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast for films that lean a little more on the agony than the ecstasy of cinema. I'm Mark Tavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're joined by Keith Phipps, prolific film writer and editor currently behind The Reveal and author of the Nicolas Cage retrospective, Age of Cage, for a very special reverse episode. We've spent all year exploring the most difficult and extreme films cinema has to offer, But in the spirit of the season, we're looking at two uncharacteristic movies by directors known for their disturbing and graphic filmographies, who just once let their watchable side get the better of them. First up is David Lynch and his G-rated Disney-produced The Straight Story, followed by gorehound Rob Zombie's family-friendly tribute to the 60s sitcom The Munsters. Can their hearts really grow three sizes, or will we have to tear them out of their chests? Mom, you can come back in the room now. <laughs> thank you, thank you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, I am thrilled to welcome film critic Keith Phipps, who as head editor helped transform the AV Club into the pop culture staple it is today, or at least was until recently a role that he served for sites like The Dissolve and UpRocks. His writing has also graced the likes of GQ, Vulture, The Ringer, Rolling Stone, and The New York Times, just to name a few. Most recently, he co-founded The Reveal, a site full of fantastic film writing from him and Scott Tobias, who can both also be heard on the Next Picture Show podcast You can also currently get Keith's book, Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. Anywhere books are sold. Keith, uh, it is an honor to have you, Uh, so much so we're gonna go easy with you on this one (laughs) with uh, maybe two of our least unwatchable uh, films we've discussed yet.
1: And not to tip my hand too early, but but starting off with a genuinely very, very good film. So I, oh, I yeah. uh, you, you may have to re- rename the, the I don't know, maybe just rename the podcast for this episode.
0: Maybe put the un in uh, parentheses. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, did I did I get all your credits right there? Because you have. Yeah,
1: no, that was that was great. Uh, I was I was like, I've been on plenty of podcasts where they don't get it right the first time and I have to be like, well, actually, no, you got all my credit It made, it, made me sound much more impressive than I actually am. So I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> Mark's been stalking you.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you just it it goes so far back with uh, you know all these pop culture sites now that are so popular. I I really feel like you've you've been there for the whole ride. I mean, does it feel like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because like you know, the AV Club when I started there, you know, was and still is. Well, you know, when there was still associated with the the Onion, but we were the print section in the back of the Onion. We were like the and and like we would stay until three o'clock in the morning with with uh, and just like physically paste up pages and drive them into the printer at at, at the cap times and, and, uh, and, uh, Wisconsin state journal, uh, on a Sunday night, uh, you know, and I, like from that, from going to that, you know, I'm glad I really had that like sort of physical media era. I I got the, I got, I got got to see the end of something and kind of the beginning of something. And now I'm, I'm, I'm suffering through, (laughs) suffering through what the (laughs) internet has become, uh, in the last few years, but, but, uh, well, what else are you going to do?
0: And you do have the reveal now, which how long has it been since you guys launched that?
1: So we launched over a year ago. I think it was October, September, October last year and and uh, it's been really good. I mean, like and I've worked with Scott for forever and we work really well together and it's a space where, you know, we're both really active freelancers, but you know, you can not always this is a place where we can just write whatever we want, you know, which is nice. We mm-hmm. kind of pursue our own passions and also do reviews. Like, you know, I I um you know, I I did reviews so many so many reviews <laughs> for years and as a freelancer, it's like the one thing that the applications just aren't interested in 99% of the time. And I still love doing them. So it's nice, it's nice for that as well.
0: Yeah. And as someone who is a a big fan of the dissolve while it lasted, uh, it really does feel like that as far as, you know, having that wide ranging freedom and and just you know, long in-depth reviews or essays.
1: Yeah, we that's what we like. I mean, the Zav was very much a, a group effort. It wasn't just Scott and me, but but we're trying to bring a little bit of that of uh, that feel to this uh, as well.
0: And of course, I do want to make sure everyone is uh, aware they can grab your book. Of course, we don't have Nicolas Cage in either of the films that we're discussing today, unfortunately. We gotta have you back for like Deadfall and Vampires Kiss oh, and
2: shit oh, someday. Man.
1: <laughs> uh dead deadfall that's that's a movie i <laughs> vampires kiss everyone everyone knows vampires kisses is, is a nutty movie uh with a with a big very big performance but deadfall is like the secret one that not many people out of is that and Zandoli are like the two like over the top nicholas cage performances that not enough people know about or maybe the right number of people know about them
0: ah,
2: right yeah <laughs> so
1: good
0: oh my god all right. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll do one of those or the wicker man is probably somewhere down there on the long list, but yeah. <laughs> did you ever hear any word back from Nicolas
1: cage? Uh, actually, yeah, oh, I, no. I, I I reached out. No, no, it's fine. It's actually really good. I, it's actually kind of ideal. Cause I reached out early in the process. I, I said, you know, tourism management and it's like, you know, I'm doing this book. If I wants to talk to me that. I would love that. Uh I never heard back. I didn't really expect to. And it's actually it would be a different book if it had like his input in it. Mm-hmm. Um and then I didn't hear anything about it, didn't hear anything about it. And then like out of nowhere in a rolling my I'm friends with the film editor at Rolling Stone and he's like sent me this screenshot he's, like this is running tomorrow and it was an interview with with Cage and he's like Keith Pipps has this really good book out that uses my career to to reflect on those changes in Hollywood or something along those lines like that's great, <laughs> you know. That's that is the right amount of. Uh, I'm glad that you know he's acknowledged it and he, uh, you know, says approving words. And then I can't actually imagine having an in-depth conversation with him about it. So this is like the right amount of feedback. <laughs> that's great.
0: That's all you needed to know.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was very gratifying. I didn't need that kind of uh, validation, but it was nice to have it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it suggests that he might have actually read it, too, which that must be a trip to imagine, or at least, you know, some of it.
1: He's a he's a book reader. Uh, I, I did learn that in the course of research, so, you know, per, perhaps so.
0: I'd like to think it's he only reads books about himself. Yeah, everyone <laughs> he, for, he buys first.
1: Well, it's like me and then a couple of really quickie biographies from the late 90s, so you'll know, you have to fill the time other times uh, some you know, some other way.
0: Right. <laughs> you can do the audiobook. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Mm. All right. Well, the the filmmaker that is our first topic of discussion is going to be David Lynch who um, I would like to talk about a little in general before we get to the straight story, because um, this certainly isn't the film that he is most known for. Obviously, his fi- career is full of films that are, you know, in some way either uh, creepy, disturbing, it can get under your skin. Um, they are often very funny in their own way. Very surreal, off the wall. People describe them as uh, just just
2: nonsense. Some people say they're just total nonsense. And here he is, uh, straightening things out, almost like answering those people who are like, "Oh, this guy he just he just does everything that comes in, into his mind, and just that it, it vomits up on screen or something." It's almost like he took this as the challenge, almost to show that he could make a straightforward story called the Straight Story.
1: And it was how it received at the time. That was there was very much the the can you believe David Lynch is making a G rated movie for for disney as as well uh and and that was kind of like the shocking that was that was what was considered so shocking about that that was what was edgy about this movie was how how not edgy it was (laughs) yes
0: yeah he has been quoted as that he considers this to be his most experimental film which for Mm. him does does make a certain amount of sense um but keith are what are your favorite lynch films outside of this or what's your general feelings about him
1: you know, I'm very pro Lynch. And um, but it's also kind of, and I like this movie an awful lot, it's also the kind of one I I don't think about as often because it is such an outlier. And because it's in the middle of this run, like you know, from Twin Peaks through, you know, Twin Peaks, basically. <laughs> He's kind of riffing on on Noir in, in one way or another. And this has none of that whatsoever. Um and, you know, in terms of favorites, I mean, well, obviously, you know, Wild Heart's in there, of course, because I wrote the book, but it's actually probably not one of my top lynches, which has changed a lot over the years. It may, it, sometimes these days, it's kind of like whatever I watched last, but like, I there's movies that I did not, you know, Lost Highway is the one where like, I didn't even care for it at the time. And, you know, when I revisited it like 10 years later, was like, Maybe this is his best movie. I don't even know, you mm-hmm. know. So it, it, the only one I haven't really—I mean, there's Dune, of course, but there's there's the only one I haven't really had that kind of breakthrough with. Otherwise, is Inland Empire, which is is I, can, I have a hard time getting past the look at that film. It's just the the sort of consumer video quality, circa 2005 or whenever they shot it. Uh, it's just still a little rough to watch, especially when he's so he's just so beautiful. He makes such beautiful images when shooting on film or when shooting on better equipment and and this is not that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Seth and I were just arguing about this the other night. We were. <laughs>
1: we were.
2: I love the lo-fi look. He he can't stand it. He can't do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I w- watched it a few years ago and I didn't it didn't have that breakthrough moment, but you know, maybe maybe one of these days.
0: I think it's weaker for other reasons, but yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely a, a huge fan of Mulholland Drive. Is probably the one I I would go for. Um, but same, I also same here. I also love Eraserhead uh, and Blue Velvet. For me, those are the the kind of three that are on the top of the mountain uh, as far as his films go, at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're right this the Straight Story does come kind of like right in the middle of those runs, shortly before Mulholland Drive, and it's interesting how you know his films are known for kind of dealing with small towns and exposing the rot and perversion and this kind of nightmare version of Americana, but there is kind of a fondness in there, I think, uh, along with his deconstructing of it, and so much of it is just about him putting his subconscious up on the screen that you can tell this is something that he's interested in and fond of even when he's turning it into something scary or surreal. And it's interesting to see him with the this, this straight story use that same setting, but without subverting it in any way.
2: Yeah, totally. Even in Blue Velvet, you can see that the, the opening is genuine in its way, which is like this slow motion like montage of the suburbs. And in, in just in any interview with him, you can see he is like I'm I'm a weirdo. I love avant-garde cinema and paintings and like he's totally off the wall but at the same time he loves sugar and hamburgers and hot rods and he's an all-American boy at the same time. And so in a way it's this is an off-the-wall choice and in another way straight story kind of feels in his wheelhouse at the same time. I don't know.
1: No, I think you're right. I think he genuinely has, there's a lot of genuine idealization of this sort of like 50s small town America in it to the point where I think, you know, in some ways, the quintessential david lynch work might even might be the eighth episode of the twin peaks of return where it's like this 1950s america you know presented as like this fallen eden with like this e- evil invading it around the same time as you know along with with a uh, you know the threat of nuclear war it's just like it's very much like his own very personal vision of where things went wrong, or how people kind of veered off the path of what 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 America should be in some ways, and I, th- I think mm-hmm. you know he's very fond of of images that reflect. That in some ways, and I think I think the small town of Iowa, small towns in Iowa and Wisconsin, you see here, are especially like that long stuff he makes, in, which I forget what city it is, but that long kind of layover, Lauren? yeah, that's where he's from. The long layover he makes in, um, you know, when he gets stranded halfway through, like that's that to me is like a place I think Lynch would would happily live, or at least you know want to spend a lot of time visiting. I mean, he was he's was spending a lot of time. I don't know how you know about the background of this movie, but he was spending a fair amount of time in Madison, Wisconsin at this time, and I, I, that's when I lived there too. But Mary Sweeney, his wife at the time, and the co-writer of this film and his editor are for for many films or a stretch of films anyway. Um, was from there and they, they they'd summer there and he and he kind of like worked with the the print you know he'd do prints at the, the printmaking collective uh, at, at the university and i saw him like just present some short films he was like around you know it's like you wouldn't necessarily see him like walking down the street or whatever but but he was very familiar with this part of the world
0: yeah and i think that helps explain too i guess how he came to this project was it, it was his longtime uh you know partner mary sweeney who really was behind developing this, that she was the one who read this New York Times article about the real Alvin Strait. This is based on a true story. Um, and she produced and co-wrote the film. And I imagine that was how it ended up, you know, being something that David Lynch agreed to actually direct and put his name behind. Uh, and like you said, she had she edited this film. She also edited the Twin Peaks film and Lost Highway, uh, and later on Mulholland Drive. and. Uh, this, I, I couldn't find a whole lot about this true story that it was based on. I mean, it mm-hmm. is basically what you see on uh, in the movie about a real guy, Alvin Strait, who is 73 years old and drove a riding lawnmower like 240 miles from uh, Iowa to Wisconsin. And that's basically exactly you know what we get in the movie. It's kind of this like, you know, human interest story you might read about in the newspaper that somehow made its way uh, to Lynch. And yeah, it's funny watching the, the film start out, you know, we get this cosmic shot of the stars and these helicopter shots of like fields of grain and this idyllic looking town, this uh, slow push in on like a lady eating pastries and this mysterious thump. And this really could just turn into Blue Velvet any second, <laughs> but it never does. Yeah, or Twin Peaks. It still has the same
2: uh, musician. Yeah, the same musician makes the music for a lot of this.
1: Angelo Badalamenti. yeah. Uh...
2: And it has a little bit of that feel, uh, some of the synthesizer parts. And even the, the violin parts are like sweet but sad. I don't know. And I, I, I adore all the returning motifs of space and stars in this movie. And I love that we start and we end there. Uh, Because so much of the surrealism here, which I do think there is like, despite it being his straight story and it being based in reality and based on a true story, there is like this, there's just still a dreaminess, a distinct surrealness, which I think comes from it being from this perspective of a man who knows that he's on, sort of on his way up, up to the stars to the next level mm-hmm. to death um i don't know that's what it keeps pointing to me as um and it uh, also points to his brother uh they say that they used to look up at the stars together and the brother is a big part uh that's who he's going to visit who they had a argument that he can barely remember what it was about but uh t- they haven't spoken for 10 years but he's going to he's going to fix things uh, Oh no! It's all this reaching for something greater. I love that.
1: Yeah, and the and the stars' imagery imagery kind of recalls Elephant Man, and as well. I mean, there's a, there's this, a it's very ahead. much it's yeah for sure, and it's unmistakably a Lynch film in other ways too. In some ways, weirdly, what it reminds me of most is Wild at Heart, as, as it's a it's a road movie where they keep you know he meets they meet they meet memorable eccentrics at every stop, you know, and there's the same kind of. The, his strange characters are kind of like kind of like the G-rated versions of some of the Wild at Heart characters where like there's this people who seemed like I, I keep thinking about the woman who hits the deer and the way that woman, you know, performs the character. The, the specific language she uses and like the, the punchline of like, and I love deer is <laughs> yeah. so, it's so Lynch. I mean, and, and just the way things are shot too, like the dissolves, like the, the I like the heartbreaking flashback to, um, SpaceX character Rose, Rose straight, when he's talking about how her children were taking from her and the way those dissolves are very much, um, a Lynch technique, the way like they use, um, I was thinking about when the when just uh, the little shot, the little moment when the bicycles um, pass him by, and the way that he uses amb- ambient noise in that is so you know in in keeping with with the way he approaches uh, sound and in, in, in his other movies too. But it's like appropriately a more a more hushed version of the of the, uh, of, the of a David Lynch soundtrack. Yeah, yeah.
0: Those are those scenes in particular are, are where I can kind of feel that they're lynchian in a way the the lady going on the rant about hitting deer all the time the way she just kind of shows up and disappears you know from the movie the bikes you know the the time that he ends up in a town and they're kind of having a practice fire that firemen are putting out Mm -hmm. like where the whole town is gathering to watch it uh those are all things that you know you feel like would only come from him that kind of focus on that
2: yeah he can't be
0: hidden he can't hide and you know, speaking of Sissy Spacek, uh, I do want to talk about the cast. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, we have Richard Farnsworth as Alvin Strait, who was 79 when he shot this. It was his last film role. He's an actor who I'm not terribly familiar with. I think I know him most as the sheriff from Misery. Like that, mm-hmm. That's kind of what's in my mind the most. Uh, but he was nominated for an Oscar uh, in 1978 for a Pakula film, Comes a Horseman, which I have not seen um, he was nominated for this as well. Another Nicolas Cage tie-in. Right. <laughs> True. And uh, we do then get Sissy Spacek, who plays his kind of a special needs daughter, a performance that I really enjoy. And oh, it's fantastic. almost a shame that there aren't more scenes between the two of them because their relationship is really sweet. And I did kind of miss her at certain points because, you know, after their last phone conversation, he pretty much leaves the focus of the story to, you know, his journey.
2: I'm sure that's one of those things that on the page probably didn't seem as important, but once Sissy stepped into that role, yeah, I'm sure there was like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were things that were added just because it was so like, it's such a good performance. She's so good to watch. I would watch a whole movie with this character
1: yeah she gives her such dignity too i mean i mean spacex always great farnsworth is someone who didn't get a lot of lead roles i actually haven't seen comes a horseman either i should i should at some point but i remember this is a film that I, i saw as a kid um Eighty-two film called *The Grey Fox*, which is another lead performance where he plays like an an, an you know an elderly stagecoach uh, robber. So he was already playing like elderly characters many mm-hmm. years, or seventeen or so years before this one this one came out too. But uh, he's really good in the natural as well. But uh, but yeah, it's basic. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I, I just watched this. Um, I just rewatched. Um, um, I just rewatched Badlands not too long before this. So it was kind of neat mm. to see two SpaceX performances back to back. And, and uh, yeah, it, she's, she's all, always reliable.
2: If I could also go, go back to a point you made about the structure. It is one of my favorite kinds of structure, the way, the way the movie works with the, uh, as he's going along this journey. And it did remind me of Wizard of Oz, which mm. there are motifs in Wild at Heart, uh, which is an interesting Parallel there because it has this like, yeah, whether it's Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland, like I love that kind of episodic journey where it's like wander for a while, meet some strange character, have a strange interaction and then wander a little further and find another. Uh, I just thought that that was was kind of sticking in my head the whole time.
1: I haven't seen it yet, but there's a documentary that came out earlier this year called Lynch Oz, which kind of pursues that whole connection to Wizard of Oz through his whole filmography. I'd like to catch up with that at some Whoa,
0: point. I want to see that. Yeah, I want to talk about the these encounters that he has, maybe just, you know, which ones stuck with you guys the most, or if they all worked as well for you. Because um, we do get kind of a, you know, a slow trickle of information that we learn about the main character uh, through these conversations. They all seem to have, you know, their own kind of theme behind them. And, a lot of the film are these kind of late night conversations around campfires, basically with people who are all, you know, happily, patiently listening to him just in the, the way that the film itself is very, you know, quiet and gentle and meditative. You really feel like they're this is a way for all these characters to kind of share in something. And there's kind of mo- more minor ones, like when he's talking with the it has a brief conversation with the bikers just about the pain of getting old and then there's you know more substantive ones like uh this scene in a bar with another old man where they suddenly start sharing war stories and get very emotional
1: yeah that's that's a that's a showstopper because i mean this is you know and he's very quiet in the way he approaches it um but i mean this is a generational generationally and regionally these are not characters who talk About their past or their feelings so it's such an extraordinary scene the way it plays out i also really love the encounter with the um the runaway the pregnant runaway uh and and it's like you know his can just kind of talking about how you know, there's people that probably miss her more than than she thinks. You know, it might be worth the you know the anger she might face just to be with her family. It's it's um, yeah, it's lovely stuff. Yeah,
0: I especially love the the little kicker at the end of that, where he comes out to find the bundle of sticks. You know, reflecting mm-hmm. a story that that he told her. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody seems to have like a
2: almost mystical reverence for him. At least, uh, or if they don't start with it, they eventually get it very quickly. Almost to, like, surreal effect. I, I enjoy almost all of the encounters. The ones that feel a little weaker are the ones that kind of maybe harp a little too hard on, like, his charm being that he's just, like, from an older time, and we, as moderns, just, just can't keep up or understand his ways or something. Like, there's the one where you, like, talks the two, the twin, he has like, of course there's twins in this movie because it's David Lynch and they're fixing his tractor at a certain point and they give him the quote and he like gives like a little speech real quick about like, you know, well, they're not doing, you're not doing much work, are you blah, 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 like grandpa kind of stuff that like talks them down on their price real fast. Like they're like suddenly terrified of his like, uh, I don't know seniority or something which I don't know like some some parts like that kind of are like these like all right well I don't know like these guys maybe money was different back in your day Mr. Straight but they're probably right to charge you and uh you're just being like one of those crotchety old men if it if it was like in real life I would be frustrated with Alvin Straight quite often if I was like a worker and he's like telling me like well, you didn't work real hard for this, you know, that
0: whole grandpa spiel. Well, Seth fixes tractors on the side, so. (laughs) I do. He has a little, it's just a little bias there. I did, I enjoyed the haggling part of that. Um, It does seem like it kind of ends with a moral with him, you know, talking about his own brother and there were brothers who were fighting. And, you know, that's a a little bit broader maybe than other other parts with
2: that. I like that aspect of it, but yeah, it is this like sort of, just by default, by being from an older age, it like is it this implication that the old times were the better times or something at all? Which I don't know. I just don't always agree with that. And, and
1: like actuality, yeah. But look at those guys. You, you know, you know, they're not giving him an honest. Uh, <laughs> you know, they didn't work that hard. It's Tweedledee <laughs> and Tweedledum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're far. They're Farley Brothers. They're they're not they're not playing hardworking characters.
0: Yeah, when I saw that in the credits, I was like, oh, that's who those, those <laughs> yeah. were. Yeah, but I do think a lot of the humor in this movie does work that Mm -hmm. there's especially scenes that just have these little details or that are allowed to play out longer than another director might let them. A few examples would be like besides the haggling with the twins, I know Sissy Spacek has like a conversation with a uh, like a a grocery store clerk, um, you know, about all of the hot dogs she's buying or (laughs) something and – yeah, mm-hmm. and they get have a you know, kind of little pause where they're just staring at the products, and she's like, I, I hate Schranger or whatever that brand was. Um, or my favorite part, which is him <laughs> buying this grabber in the yes. hardware store. Like, oh, well, that's a darn good grabber, Alvin. And he, like, he stretches out this whole scene about this guy not wanting to sell his good grabber. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I found that very funny.
2: Not to harp too much on the Wizard of Oz thing, but, like, the, the way that his town that he lives in, minus, like, Sissy Spacek and, like, a couple other people, it feels like he lives in a magical town of old people. Like, when he, like, hmm. leaves to go, like, start on his journey, it's, like, all these old men with white hair, like, chasing him down the street. Like, where are you going, Alvin? What's going on? I just
0: love that scene. There's something really strange about it. So, one question I want to consider and get both of your guys' take on is if you could just imagine maybe not knowing that this was a David Lynch film. You know, we've distinguished things that do make it apparent that it's him. But do you think that you would come to that conclusion on your own if you didn't know? Or maybe if you'd even look at the movie differently, if, say, this was directed by— um uh, no one's really come into mind. I don't know, like a Alexander Payne or something. Although his would be much more cynical, or so, you know, but he deals with this kind mm-hmm. of milieu a lot. Would we see this maybe more as just like a little, you know, unassuming story with some extra nice grace notes?
1: It's it's too peculiar, I think, I, to, to 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 look at it that way. I mean, it it's just got this strange rhythm to it uh it does it, the, the scene like you're talking about with the grabber you know that plays out like in a really uh it doesn't take its time the whole movie is kind of that way where it kind of moves at its own pace there's no this is definitely not a film made from a, a screenwriting handbook uh you know there is it's just mm-hmm. kind of one incident pile on top of the other i do i do think as we've been talking about you know there there you get his story along the way reflected in the people he meets. Um, As well, which I think that's kind of how it's structured, but it's definitely not a a first act, second act, third act kind of kind of film. Um, It's, yeah, I think it's, and I think, you know, I don't know, you know, if I'm being honest, would I immediately sniff this out as a David Lynch film? Uh, perhaps not, but I definitely don't think you could see it as as like an ordinary Disney heartwarming film from that era. You uh, know, you know that you know, that would come out around this time.
2: Uh, some some aspects of it kind of point towards, like for a moment, I could see if I didn't know that it was Lynch, I would kind of feel like this is like a borderline Hallmark movie or something. But then. There are these like strange flourishes. And if I did stick, if you do stick with the whole thing, regardless of if you know David Lynch or not, I, I think you're not going to walk away from this. I mean, you could show it to your mom, but it still has this like strangeness. It's a, it's a unique movie, uh, unlike any other of its kind, as far as the like watery eyed true story, like genre, I guess.
0: Um it's just a certain sparkle to it that I don't see in others. It's funny. The first time I saw this, I actually did watch it with my mom, uh, <laughs> who enjoyed it at um, at the time. This is the mom but, episode. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I do. I do see. You know, a little bit. I don't think that this this you know is like a hallmark movie, but you know, there are some moments. Uh, you know, I really do like uh, Angelo Badalamenti's uh, score, especially the main theme uh, with the you know the strings and acoustic guitar. There are a couple music cues maybe that get a little treckly, you know, here and there. But for the most part, I think he keeps things more plaintive than that. Especially if you look at the ending, which you know we pretty much spoil anything on this podcast, but I don't necessarily have to say exactly what it is. But when he does finally have this climactic moment of reaching his brother, who turns out to be Harry Dean Stanton, which I did not remember uh, (laughs) until he showed up on the screen. Almost pulls me out a little bit, but. (laughs) Yeah, they, they have just like one very brief exchange and then it's over. You know, before they they have a big, you know, catharsis or conversation, which is not something I would see another filmmaker doing. They both look up and then we cut
2: to the stars again and it's over.
1: I mean, these guys are not guys who are going to talk about their feelings or even like you know talk about the argument they had. They're just kind of going to accept it and move on. I think that kind of kind of fits. I do love yeah that final shot where you recall them looking at the stars as kids. I think that's a it's a really nice touch as well.
2: Which I, again, I go back to being like a central object of like kind of unique strangeness with this movie that does kind of answer any of the aspects of it. Where like again, if like I didn't have if I didn't know who Lynch was, I might have more questions about, is this like a super patriotic movie or something like that? Or like, if is it harping on a specific like, oh, the old times were better or something? That aspect of it being this, looking at the stars as this strange gateway is unique to this, I think, and keeps it from feeling like that. Again, this is all just hypothetical. Of course, we know it's David Lynch and we know David Lynch, so, you know.
1: But I think I think one you know another way of looking at it also is like this is taken from a human interest story. I haven't read the original New York Times story. I imagine it goes deeper than most of your human interest stories of, of this type. But at the same time, it's kind of think like, well, that's a that's a neat story, you know. And and like you never really think beneath the surface of it. And like this is a film that, that asks you to hang out with Alvin Strait and get to get to know him and and know every you know know a lot of learn about a lot about his his life. I mean. You know, it's so easy to be—you know—this is a cute old man doing a cute old man thing. But, but to him, it's this is a very serious thing. And, and, and I, and again, I I keep coming back to that scene in the bar where it's like this is someone who has a lot of trauma. He's never really sorted through, Um, and someone who is—you know—never had a chance. you, You know, not even he wasn't expected to talk about about what he'd been through and wouldn't be inclined to talk about what he'd been through. And so we kind of just spend some time with someone who, and get to know them, who's not easy to get to know. I think that's, that's uh, what a, you know, one nice aspect of this film.
0: And I think that it's very much about mortality. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this journey is definitely, it's more about more than just reconciling with his brother. This is something Mm -hmm. that he's doing that means something almost spiritual to him to the point where he turns down, you know, help from people or getting a ride late in because it's just something that he needs to do. And for me, it's really hard for me to separate what I know uh, in real life about this movie, which is that Richard Farnsworth was, he had terminal cancer when they were shooting this Mm -hmm. movie and he was in a lot of pain while they were doing it and he died barely a year after it came out um, by Mm -hmm. taking his own life as part of his response to the illness. And remembering that makes so much of his scenes, it adds so much gravity to them that it was almost painful uh, in certain parts. Like I got very sad um, (laughs) watching a lot of his scenes, just knowing how completely uh, raw and true to life that that was. And that's something, you know maybe wouldn't have registered as powerfully if i you know didn't know that or if i knew that he had you know 10 more films ahead of him but knowing you're actually watching a dying man I'm giving this lovely yeah. performance and reflecting directly on it and alvin feels like a dying
2: character i mean he he he's visibly he's aged and he is not he has that checkup at the beginning like the doctor is, it's not a happy pr- prognosis and he's too stubborn to change anything at this point. And he knows that this feels very much like a final chapter for him. And he and he knows it very, very deeply. This is a final act of some sort, a final ritual. And to Keith's point, yeah, that the by the end when the two brothers meet, that they aren't going to have a big conversation. They're not going to talk about their feelings. And almost like he knew that that would be the case. And maybe part of this, crazy as the aspect of this that he had to do this in a tractor and not get help and not get a ride it comes to fruition when harry dean stanton his brother's character looks at the little tractor that brought him here and starts tearing up uh when he finally comes and he doesn't have to say a word after that he said you came in that thing and then that's basically like the end of it uh, right and that's all that needed he expressed what he needed to express through this journey and his brother can see what he did for him.
0: So what I want to do is I think it's pretty clear that we're no one none of us are gonna unwatch this this lovely movie, right? No. <laughs> it's pretty heartless. <laughs> but I do want to give everyone a chance just to, you know, say any final thoughts maybe that you had about it, or any aspect that we didn't get to, or if nothing else, you know, where this this falls in in Lynch's filmography for you. Uh so Keith do you have any any final
1: thoughts? I mean I kind of wish well I just he's not very prolific anymore. I kind of wish there were more David Lynch films in general, but I, I, it'd be nice if there were more outliers like this too, you know. It, it is uh knowing not that I I I, I you know I, I admire his his work greatly as we've already covered, uh but the fact that he could do this, you know, makes me kind of wonder what else he could have done obviously return of the jedi um <laughs> but yes. uh do yeah, well I, I still can't imagine what that film would look like but um um uh, but you it's know too, maybe though. a few more um a few more side trips like this would have would have been cool to see it, it's 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 hard to remember now but this was even a right this arrived at a real low point in terms of his critical and commercial stock i mean Fire Walk With Me was not a hit, uh, Lost Highway was not a hit, and neither were particularly well-received. And like I said before, I, I don't think I, I cared for either of those movies too much at the time, although I, I like them quite a bit now. And, and this was, uh, though it was before Mulholland Drive, as filmography, he'd, he'd already made the Mulholland Drive TV pilot at this point, and it had been uh, rejected by, I believe it was ABC, it was the network. Uh, and at this point, it was going to air as a as a TV movie just as like the, the pilot version, uh, so this was I can see where he there were the impulse to do something new was was you know could could have been driving him at this point, and it would you know I, I I and I appreciate that about it, and and so you know I do wish there were a few more little oddities like this, but you know whatever we'll take we got this one.
2: We did get this one, and I totally agree. I wish uh, as much as I love that David is in this particular position where he does get to do basically specifically like the strange things that come into his mind and the like his vision is like what first and foremost he seeks and what he is fortunate enough to do quite often. Not often enough, I agree. But this kind of makes me wish in some ways he was more of a working director, at least in the past, that we could have seen him just bring his touch to... Just about anything, I think he could he would rise to the surface and just really elevate whatever it is that he's working in, which I think is always really interesting with an artist. This doesn't strike me as much of an outlier anymore in his filmography. I do think the more you get to know him, the more you get to know his work. I'm surprised we don't have more of this side of the sort of surreal, mystic, mystic- mystifying aspect of American life where like, cause he, he loves both. That's the thing. He loves the dark strangeness and he loves the like beauty, which is always like at war and, uh, sort of like slowly becoming indistinguishable from, uh, one, one or the other, uh, the ugliness and the beautiful aspects, uh, in movies like Mulholland drive and blue velvet quite often, uh, And I I like that
0: we do spend, for once, just kind of in the beautiful side of things. Yeah, I do. I love the idea of him, you know, directing a script that he didn't write, uh, whether, you know, a David Lynch work for hire, just because I think this shows just what a capable filmmaker that he is, that this is such a well-shot and beautiful movie. Outside of the things that we've identified as being recognizable by him, there's just all of these, you know, landscape shots and things that you wouldn't normally associate with him uh, that are just, you know, really handsome here. And that he does have a good, you know, a way with working with actors. And the way that this brings all of that stuff to the surface, just his, you know, base level craft is something that I I find really rewarding and interesting. So, you know, he's definitely a guy who's kind of defined by his brand right now that, you know, as this this auteur and is very much in, you know, in control of every little aspect of what he does. And it brings certain expectations to any kind of project that he's doing. So, yeah, something like this, I think, does highlight things about him that might not be as immediately apparent. And I also wish that, yeah, we just got more from him. At this point, more just anything, since it has been, you know, so long. It would be great if every couple years there was a, a new David Lynch movie, but. A well, Marvel movie, you know. <laughs> I might have to see that if that happened. <laughs> I'm surprised
2: they never turned one of the new Star Wars over to him just to apologize for him not making Return of the Jedi. Yeah,
0: they need to even that score somehow. Yeah, oh God. <laughs> All right, well, three thumbs up then for The Straight Story. I'm very interested to see where everybody ends up on our next film, which has pretty much nothing in common with (laughs) The Straight Story, except that it's the first, um, you know, kind of family film made by a director who, even more so than David Lynch, has never made anything remotely that you would uh, watch with children (laughs) or— in some cases, anyone that you love. Um, so I, I want to dive right in into talking about Rob Zombie. Keith, um, monsters aside, where are you on the, the camp of, you know, finding some of his work uh, interesting? Are you not a big fan? Because he's pretty polarizing.
1: So I missed a few. I missed the last three, Lords of Salem 31 and Three from Hell. And the thing with Rob Zombie is I don't always love his movies, but I love that he's out there making them because there is his own unique vision. Um, he likes a lot of things. Some things I do. I, I, you know, I love the classic horror films and what he does with them. Uh, you know, the, the, that whole like aesthetic he, that he digs digs into, and and old Grindhouse films and things like that. Um, I find his Halloween really, really defensible. Like I I think that's, uh, you know, that's a whole other podcast episode. But I do think he's doing something really interesting in 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 that movie uh, as well. And and just kind of like, I just kind of like him and as a personality as well. I will. I I don't think this is telling stories out of school, but we we interviewed him for the AV Club like years ago, and um, out of nowhere, I get a request like saying, you know, uh, my kid is a big Rob Zombie fan. He's very sick. Can you put me in touch with him? And I was like, I really can't. But, I, I, you know, I passed that on to his publicist, and then, you know, time passes. I get an email from this woman again. She's like, Oh my God, Rob Zombie like sent me like just all this stuff. You know, he just like he said like he just really hooked her kid up with all this autographed uh Rob Zombie stuff. Went above and beyond. So you know um, that that's yeah, I have some warm warm feelings just because of that <laughs> as, as well. Totally. Uh So yeah, no, I'm 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 pro Zombie with. The, but if you you know if you put me if you ask me if I really would you know can I just film every aspect of say House of a Thousand Corpses? Not not really. I remember I not really caring for that film very much at the time, but having like a couple of scenes that were like, wow, this guy can really make a great film someday. So, you know, so pro-zombie, I guess, short version.
0: That's pretty much the same place I'm coming from. And we actually did do a whole episode on him uh, earlier this year talking about The Devil's Rejects and Halloween 2. So we did get pretty in-depth into the his weaknesses and strengths—I think both of which are pretty significant—and I, I agree that the his actual filmmaking has has so much uh, energy and invention to it. He's so visually exciting, yeah. And his uh, his weaknesses as a writer are kind of what I frequently get in the way of that for me. So yeah, I, there's not necessarily one movie of his that I could point to of being like, "Oh, this is full out. I love this. I think it totally works." But there's always something. Some element in there that makes it, uh, you know, whether it's in a confrontational way or just in a kind of hallucinogenic visual kind of way, um, that he definitely has his own voice as an auteur. And again, just like you said, Keith, I'm kind of behind him, you know, in theory, but not so much to the point where I also didn't skip his last couple of movies because they they really just didn't seem to the buzz seemed so bad around them. Is he's kind of, I don't know, almost fallen out of favor since his glory days, you know, around the Halloween and Devil's Rejects time, and maybe not uh, unfairly. It seems like his stuff is always getting, like,
2: praised in retrospective. It just takes a little while, and he, mm-hmm. he will always have his cult. I also love the Halloween movies that he does, and even— I can totally see like the things that are wrong with them and the things that are wrong with a lot of his movies. But yeah, I I agree that he has a unique visual uh, approach to things. And I just I just like that he seems to really not give a fuck. He really does do things the way he wants to do them. And sometimes it's like for the best, sometimes it's for the worst. It feels very much that he's making them for his friends, too, which is kind of fun. And I definitely think and, and, that's and going with his on friends here as well. Yes, with <laughs> yes. his friends specifically. Like in this movie, these are not like big names. It's his wife and various characters that you like kind of bit parts that I noticed like from various zombie movies. Like I think what's his face who plays Herman Munster in this is like, he's a guy who gets killed in Halloween two and a guy who's kind of like the nice guy in Lords of Salem. But like, I don't really, I haven't really seen him in a ton of other things. And there's a couple other like characters like that, but he doesn't care. He wants, he like, these are the people that he likes to make movies with and he's going to make movies with them. Is kind of great, kind of old school in that way, like backyard
1: filmmaking almost. And I actually think um this is a flawed film. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, and when it first was announced, and like, so who's the cast of this Rob Zombie sponsors? And it's like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, I'm not sure I know most of these people, but but um I think everyone in it's really good, though. I think Jeff Daniel Phillips as as Herman is a lot of fun uh, and it's not just doing a Fred Gwynn impression. And I really love Sherry Moon Zombie as, as Lily. I mean, she's very Me vulnerable and sweet. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of uh, convincing as a real character, not just like someone doing a goof of, of, a, of a vampire woman as, as an innocent, uh, uh, you know, lovelorn person you know I, I don't know i think they're both really good
2: i think she embodies lily quite a bit i think she's the one that nails it the most for me yeah i think because she kind of stays closer to the original character where i think like like grandpa in particular like rubbed me a bit where it was like he just had like a totally different kind of subdued demeanor the accent was really different uh, which I love, Grandpa. Like, I I love the monsters in general, and yeah, like I just found that like lacking. I didn't hate Herman, but it did feel a little like he was trying to spin
0: it in a certain way, and I don't know, like if it was always working for me though. Well, just to get some background on this, um, for the original show, The Monsters, in case anyone doesn't know, that ran from '64 uh, to '66 on CBS. Um, it was actually. Uh, produced, I think, by the creators of Leave It to Beaver. And I I kind of went on a little binge, like a marathon of the original show in the week leading up to watching this movie, just so They're I can so make sure fun. I was very uh, familiar with it. And I, I did have a blast with it because it very much is about um, kind of parodying sitcom tropes, almost in a way that the it almost has more in common with say the 90s Brady Bunch movies than the original Brady Bunch even though it was much closer to that um because there's lots of hokey puns and silly visual gags but i think they age a lot better because there's kind of a winkingness to them and you know it's it's making it's kind of sending up the sitcom form and it's very fun in that way and i think the cast is really great we have Fred Gwynn is Herman, um, Yvonne DiCarlo is Lily, and Al Lewis is Grandpa. And uh, they're just very funny. I was just very charmed by this series. And apparently this was something that Rob Zombie was a self-proclaimed super fan of, and that he's been trying to make a Munsters movie for his whole career, even before House of a Thousand Corpses, he had this idea. So this really is a passion project for him. Which just isn't factoid as is cute as hell. That's just, you know, regardless of how you feel about the movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, he did kind of feels like he drew on his friends for this. Um, for Herman, this Jeff Daniel Phillips, apparently he was the Geico Caveman from the caveman commercials. What? Hmm. Uh
1: <laughs> yeah. So so was Nick Kroll at one point, huh. too, I believe.
0: In yeah, which actually had it turned into like a sitcom briefly. And uh yeah, I was surprised by that. And uh his wife Sherry Moon zombie, anyone who's seen his films knows that she's in all of them. And I was kind of most leery about her, you know, getting cast in this role for that reason. And I also agree with you guys that I, I think she came out on top because she is doing an imitation, but she's, that's kind of what I'm looking for, I guess, with this movie that she captured the spirit and is the only one who kind of feels like she is in an old sitcom. Uh, even though I think there's aspects of the movie that are kind of actively working against <laughs> that whole presentation. Um, and then we have Daniel Roebuck as Grandpa, who's basically a character actor. I guess he was on Matlock and in the Fugitive movie and other zombie films. Apparently, he played Jay Leno in the Late Show movie. That was right. maybe the most significant thing <laughs> that I saw in there. Yeah, yeah, I
1: think it's his highest profile role, highest profile role. But yeah, he's one of those guys who just works all the time. So you know one of the people that, like when you when you figure out who they is like, oh yeah, that guy, but but it takes a takes a while to get there. Yeah, there's
0: a few, oh, that guy's in this movie. I know Jorge Garcia from Lost mm-hmm. uh is in kind of like a new invented character.
1: Sylvester McCoy, a former doctor on Doctor Who as is, is Igor.
0: Oh right. Okay. So yeah, there's lots of of stuff in there. There's a spirit, you
2: know, to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can tell they really wanted um what's his face who played the clown in house of a thousand corpses it really felt like sid hag he Hague. was supposed yeah. to be grandpa but he died and i don't know they got this guy i don't know that's
0: just what struck me <laughs>
1: <laughs> that seems very plausible
0: yeah yeah i think so and uh, but this is this is an origin story so this is not something that just picks up where the show was and i think that's where my problems start with this movie is that For me, very much the the charm and humor of the original series was about the dissonance of, you know, seeing these hoary tropes filtered through these macabre characters. And you always have normal people around as foils. Where this movie, for the most part, till like, I don't know, the last 20 minutes, it it takes place in pretty much an entire kind of tacky, like stylized Halloween world full of other Mm -hmm. monsters. Even the glimpse you get of, people like on TV are these kind of grotesque, uh, Dick Tracy types, uh, that are not very much set in reality. And I think it kind of got off on the wrong foot with me for that reason. Well, and
1: it's, it's set in the real place of Transylvania, which I'm sure looks exactly like it does in this film. Right. I mean, That's <laughs> <been> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I kind of like that part. I kind of like the, the, like sort of like Low budget live action version of Halloween Town from from Nightmare Before Christmas in some some ways, but it did it went on for a long. This film is very oddly structured. Uh in, or if if you want to use the word structured with it. Like I, as an origin story, um, you know, maybe we should maybe gotten to the actual setup a little sooner. You know, the culture clash is mm-hmm. sort of a big part of this, and there's no culture clashing going on. It's just a lot of Odd stuff. that said some of us, some of my favorite stuff is in the beginning. I, I I love I love Herman Munster. It makes no sense. Nothing in the film really follows logically from from the thing that came before, but Herman Munster rockstar is is a really fun uh, section of this film.
2: Yeah, I do love Halloween World or whatever it is. i it's just so visually off the wall and so fun to look at. I can't help it. Uh, it's, it is really gaudy. It's really tacky it is on purpose and that's one of the the, like sort of campy aspects of there's a lot of campy things going on here on purpose that don't work but the visual look is what worked for me um and that's what kept me going through those stretches even though what was going on in some of them was like not really working like as far as like dialogue and things like that but i do kind of agree that i i couldn't help but like by the third act, which I was dreading because I was like, "All right, this movie has already gone on so long." The third act is actually the most interesting, and you kind of realize it because it's when the actual recognizable aspects of the Munster show starts to become manifest, which is kind of unfortunate in a way, as like I feel like I was just starting to like this, and then it's over. So it makes so this bigger half of it. Is just kind of not resting well in my memory,
1: yeah. I wish he'd had a co writer on this because I oh, think he every really, movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think he get, he has a really good feel for the characters, the visuals are really uh fun, uh, some of the jokes are really funny. Just like I, I like, I love the them. Arriving on Halloween, and then then the long section when the that long gag where they wake up the next morning, and it's actually like through sort of this idyllic American um, suburb, and they're horrified by it. That's that, that's that's funny. Um, I you know someone maybe to say maybe don't do the romani stereotype I mean, you know, you don't have to put it in every element of old horror movies some of them are kind of unfortunate i yeah. i, I kind of cringe with lester the werewolf that character was oh little,
0: yeah yes yeah um, a little
1: a little a little problematic but, yeah it uh, without saying uh, yeah but uh but, but the, i feel like this film's heart is in its right place I forgot about that. even even you know uh even if it doesn't always uh, quite execute the way it should.
0: Yeah, and I think that it is Zombies' weaknesses as a writer, especially, that uh, kind of kneecap this because it's especially his attempts at, you know, jokes and little comedic flourishes in his other movies that especially don't work for me. So I don't think he has the greatest um, grasp on comedic rhythm. Uh, And... It's so much of this depends on the sitcom form for me that, you know, all the puns and the dumb jokes, you know, which are right up my alley, are helped so much in the show by the laugh track, the, you know, the multi-camera format, it all kind of ties together in this intentional way. And the way that he shoots this movie is so much just these characters like delivering puns to each other in silence with like canted angles and uncomfortable close-ups which kills a lot of the humor for me, or it's like not letting it be hokey enough almost. And some of his own jokes are not great, just kind of retorts that are punchlines, like, gee, you think, or uh, even getting a little bit dirty, like a joke about, you know, Uranus or grandpa looking at a Playboy spread. Um, That just seemed like not, not quite on the mark, although I agree there are some lines and jokes that do work. My favorite, by far, that I remember is when Grandpa is like, oh, I was out to dinner with Jack the Ripper last night, who, by the way, is no Jack the Tipper. I'm like that could be Maybe. in the that could be yeah. in the original show.
1: Did you ever see the movie Monster Go Home? No, I was I just now
2: started realizing that there's a bunch of these monster movies and I want to see them. I did many many years ago.
1: Yeah, it's the original people. I think there's a different might be a new Marilyn in that one, but otherwise it's the original cast. So like it would be a third Marilyn at that point. Um, but you know that it was made immediately after the show, and it's in color. And they go to England. I remember as a kid, I watched the show all the time. And then, like, I saw there's a movie of it. You know, the Monster Go Home movie on TBS, which used to run this kind of thing all the time. And I'm like, oh great, I'll watch that. i remember, like watching as a kid. Like, I don't know, do I? Do I like the monsters? <laughs> this movie's not very good. And I think it's what you're talking about, where it, it is the um, you, you kind of need. And so you need that sitcom format to to work or you need to rethink what the humor of the show is.
2: I totally agree. I mean, yeah, can we talk about the humor and why it doesn't work? I think it is if you could just shoot it more like a sitcom, it would work better or throw the laugh track in because that Mm -hmm. is what was so like, it just felt so awkward that it would, and it was just one after another of just, the joke is that the joke is not funny. Which again, right. I really like camp. I really love like just s- silly, like campy humor. But this felt like it was just purely like all about gags, like just tell someone telling a joke to you or not like maybe and not even enough like visual gags and things like that. I don't know. Maybe that would have helped more. Um, but it felt s- just, it was just really banking on Herman, which I did think was kind of an interesting little like. Aspect of the backstory that, like, this is why Herman tells all these bad jokes in the sitcom is because he is a he used to be a stand up comedian, rock star guy, you know, like, and that's why he's a hack comedian, to this. a hack mm-hmm. comedian.
0: I didn't really understand why that was his origin story, like, he needed an excuse for him to use bad puns. Like, why is everyone else talk that way too? Yeah. That didn't make, I don't understand where that idea it's came true. from. It's true, yeah, everybody talks like that in this universe. So, yeah, he's he's no different. So, I think that it's just essential that these characters are juxtaposed with the real world, you know, the normies all around them. And that's, some, that's why the movie just starts to come to life in that last 20 minutes when they get to the neighborhood. And I start to actually have a little fun with it because you are seeing that contrast as opposed to just— you know, just kind of general cartoonishness that we get for the movie leading up to that. And I, I did ugh, I did have a really rough time with the guy playing Herman. And maybe it's because I was watching so much of the original show and mm. I was looking for someone to capture his spirit more. And so much of just, he did, was doing this kind of voice that was on its own that almost sounded more like a kind of Jerry Lewis or um, even who's the guy who's on a couple of the, Paul Lind is in a couple of the ac- the original um, shows, episodes that he almost reminded me of. So I did think he had the laugh down, he had some of the expressions down, but- He looks good. Character, Yeah, the character was just so not the like, you know, Mike Brady uh, send up that he was in mm-hmm. the original. And maybe it was hard for me to get that out of my mind. Uh, Grandpa was really neither here nor there for me. Fe- felt like he'd let the makeup do most of the work. And also, it's only a five-person stable cast in the original show, and because this is an origin story, we don't even get a hint of Eddie or Marilyn, the cousin. Do you find that weird, Keith, that this like we only get we're so focused on these characters? We even got Spot, but n- not Marilyn.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, be, the, maybe the origin story idea wasn't the way to do this. Perhaps it's that, because you do lose, like you say, you know, two 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 key cast members, that not to, to say nothing of the the conflict that drives the show in the first place by doing it that way and uh, uh, but yeah that is that is that is like I I, um, I don't know is there a way to do this where you just have the Herman and Lily falling in love parts and then kind of maybe fast forward. To the uh, to the, the stuff at the end. I don't know. Maybe it was cute. Sometimes they they warmed my heart. I, I'm not a comedy writer. I'm not, I'm not a professional comedy writer. Right. So perhaps <laughs> you, you bring someone in who who could could uh, answer those questions for you if you're making this film.
2: Yeah, I did find them kind of cute. You know, some of the. Back and forth with big bumbling Herman and Lily, you know, mainly because it did feature Lily, which I did think was the strongest part of the movie. Um, but yeah, some of that was cute, and it, it it just didn't focus enough. I feel like I just think we we were watching like a very bloated like what should have been a fifteen minute prologue or something to the actual movie. Yeah, this
0: is a very long and kind of strangely paced uh, movie. Very, and awesome. I don't know if maybe. Maybe he was being kind of overly optimistic that he's going to get to make another one of these movies where he gets to throw them in.
1: It feels like that, doesn't it? Mm. It feels like it's, it's, he's kind of, there was a kind of the, you know, everything's a franchise, everything, you know, gets sequels. So let's use this to set up Monsters 2, um, which I don't, I don't think we're going to get. Doesn't it seems unlikely at this point?
2: I mean, he made a third Devil's Rejects or whatever. Uh, That's true. I know. <laughs> He does what he wants. That is his whole thing.
1: Yeah, mm. but I don't know if there's like a piece the of these characters again. <laughs> it's after true. This. Yeah, it is strange. It is strange though to beyond bringing in zombie to begin with, which makes sense with him being a big fan, but to you know make this movie but not really give him a budget you know, to, to, I mean, it, it looks, it's really creative, but at the same time, the, the complete absence of name actors, I mean, I guess probably the biggest name is Jorge Garcia in the cast, right? Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. Cassandra Peterson, you know? Um, it's nothing that's going to draw in people um, or or have the production values that make it look like a major studio release. I'm not sure. And it would be really, I'd love to know the behind the scenes story of how, Uh, This got made, to to borrow the name of another podcast. Yeah,
0: and I'm glad you said that because I really do feel like there's a kind of cheapness to how this looks, which is Mm -hmm. very, very different from his other movies that, you know, I don't have a problem with the set design or the lighting and stuff, but I feel like when people talk about the kind of, like, uncinematic, like, Netflix look of streaming films, like movies that are made for streaming, that this is what they're talking about, that— it's very just kind of flat, bright, mm-hmm. not not much texture, almost like it was shot on an iPhone or something. And you compare that to, you know, like Halloween 2, one of the things that we liked about it or I liked about it when we were discussing the film that for all of the issues that I had with it, it is just so atmospheric and so good looking in a way that a lot of horror movies don't even bother with nowadays. Oh yeah, I like. And I didn't get any of that from this and what <laughs> It's like it's got I mean, there's the whole day glow. You, Mark. I know it's got all the day glow colors and the light filters and everything, yes, honey. But the actual way it was shot, just these you know, long wide shots interchanging with these canted close ups, it didn't just seem very uncreative and just kind of ugly to me. It's quite the opposite. I don't
2: understand. It's quite the opposite. They cut to looking through a porthole all of a sudden for no reason. That's that's uh, you know, that's out of the ordinary, Mark. For the monsters, it sure is. I think you're wrong
1: because he's so deliberate. I almost have to wonder if this was by design, like it's supposed to look this way. I, there's a they covered this on on the Flophouse podcast. I don't know if you guys listened to that. It, it's very good, but someone mm. referred to it as kind of looking like a live action. I think I think they said live action Disney Channel movie from the '90s, which it really does it totally, kind of have that look to. That's it. what struck me, and I wonder if that was like a choice to go for I I, I don't know though I, I'm not uh, again I'd love to know some behind the scenes there's, there's a there's a Blu-ray with a feature length audio commentary from Zombie uh, I'm tempted to pick it up just to get some answers to some of these questions
0: yeah I almost would have rather watched that than the, the movie the way that it was like that would have been a lot more interesting
2: well it at least reminded me of like Moonbeam Entertainment which did like these runs of weird children's movies like Spooky Town and like Train World which i they're all just these strangely surreal like low budget but like very visually strange children's movies uh, yeah like it, it reminded me of that aesthetic if anything and that's what kept me going with this or like a big budget
0: George Kuchar flick or something F- well, big for George I guess yeah it, it definitely it stands out from his other work in that way uh, but it was another thing that just kind of fell flat for me. See, I don't get that at all. It looks like his music videos. It looks like all his stuff. What are you talking about? It's all like visually crazy stuff that he does. I don't know. I think that he, I think he was put a lot of energy into building, you know, these the sets and the costumes and everything and that, I don't know, maybe his true calling is like designing a haunted house you can walk through. Like that seems to be where he put all of his. <laughs> yes his energy but you think this is less visually stimulating than halloween 2 oh i do but that's just because i'm not i'm not giving as much points just for like the lighting and stuff as i think that you are it it really it it did not seem like cinematic to me in any way
1: yeah it's been a while for me since halloween 2 but but i do remember it looking he did did kind of look like it was shot on a film stock from the 70s or 80s if i remember correctly and and this does not have that. It does, you know. If, if you're asking me, you know, you're, if you want to see a movie that's shot like that or one that's shot like this, I'm, I'm going to choose that. The former every time. Um, yeah, there is, there is that. But I, I did not feel like I, when the trailer first came out, it got passed around the internet. It was like, what, what is this? <laughs> it was you know, weird. this, is, this <laughs> yeah. But I feel like watching the whole thing, the look of it. Makes more sense than just the shock of seeing in a trailer. Um, it, it does. It does feel like this was the plan. Now, whether that or not was a good plan, I'm not sure. But it does feel like more of a complete vision when you watch the whole film versus just seeing th- the glimpses of it in the trailer.
0: Yeah, I see that, and it does look pretty different by the time they're, uh, you know, in their neighborhood at the end of the movie. And maybe that's yeah. just because of the lighting. Yeah, it pretty much, it just ended right at the moment when I wanted it to start. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that that was very strange. Not even a like, oh, I'm pregnant now, like a little tease of Eddie or nothing. It just was kind of like, all right, we're done here.
1: You do get Cousin Lester showing up and saying, I, I, I'm i rich. You know, they, I won big in Vegas, and now we're all rich, which almost feels like a setup for a Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> uh, oh,
0: wow. Well. Yeah, I don't know. He might have he might have just kind of blew his shot at the the movie unless he does get to make another one, but I won't be watching it if he does unless we have to for this podcast. Oh, Bob's making another one. There's no stopping Bob. And again, good for him. He's kind of a someone who's like Keith said, I appreciate the spirit and uh I kind of was this is a whole other topic that maybe another can of worms, but uh you know, someone like Jordan Peele right now keeps, you know, making these ambitious movies that I'm like, "Yeah, man, keep giving him the resources to make more and more, even though I'm yet to have one that works like completely for me. But this is still, I don't know, Give I'll give another chance to another Rob Zombie Netflix movie. Better him than another, you know, like Ryan Murphy uh, project or something. So let's, I think I, this is worth asking the question maybe for this movie of would you unwatch it if you could? Because we went into this with a, uh, you know, that this was a spirit of these are gonna be movies that are nice and, you know, gentle and silly and enjoyable and not tough to get through in the sense that, you know, a lot of the movies that we talk about actually are. But I personally ended up uh, really not liking this movie. And I think I actually would in the sense that, you know, that we use it on this podcast, I might not mind on watching it. So I don't know, would anyone else react that violently to it as I did?
1: No, I, I can't. I can't hate this movie, okay. and I, I, am actually kind of fond of it. Would watch it again is another question. But there, there are many other movies I felt like wasted my time by being, you know, derivative or uninspired or, or mean spirited and, in and or whatever you want to call it. This, this is none of that. This is a genuine attempt to make a monsters movie. Um, I'm, i I, I, I can't, I can't get mad at it.
2: Yeah, it has a unique zombie flavor to it that keeps me like kind of staying with it. But part of me does want to just mute it the whole time because I don't know. I really wanted to like this. I really wanted to like see this as like a strange, like exciting little, little anomaly uh, as Rob zombie comedy. But that is just often the case, like with all his movies that his humor is just, it really rubs me the wrong way. It just is so, like, poorly handled. And I think a whole movie of that was just a lot for me. I'm not going to unwatch it because I do I do like it visually. I do think it is, you know, it's at least more interesting than some of the remakes that come out. And not all not altogether for, like, good reasons. Some of them are just like, wow, what a strange idea. But it's at least something. But, yeah, for the most part, the humor really
0: makes it a, a slog for me, uh, personally. All right. Well, you broke the tie, then that gets to it, <laughs> the movie gets to be watched another day. Yep, you have to watch it again, Mark. Yeah, that's my punishment. Yeah, that's how it should work. That's what we'll do <laughs>
2: on the podcast from now on. You know, like the per- now, if there's a tie, if there's a tie like this, the person who hated it the most has to watch it
0: again. Oh boy. Well, uh, Keith, I really want to thank you for joining us. Um, oh sure. Uh, Tony, were you going to say something? Oh, well, uh, I was just going to say, speaking of
1: revisits, uh, please go listen to our Rob Zombie episode. Uh, we're wrapping up, uh, year one of a pretty successful podcast. And for whatever reason, that is, uh, the ugly stepchild episode for us. Uh, it has like half <laughs> as many listens as all the others. Really good episode. Uh, no guest on that one. Just Mark and Seth talking about Rob Zombie. So, uh, and I have that's COVID my on plug air. for all of our. Oh, that's the one you had COVID on. There you yeah. go. There's your there's your hook. So for all of our voice. new listeners, we've been we've been gaining. That's uh my my, my self-plug for, for the uh Rob Zombie episode nobody
0: likes. Historic Rob early. Zombie <laughs> gave Seth COVID. <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, anyways, uh Keith, this was a really fun discussion. And thank you for I mean, this basically was, you know, the films that you picked off of the list too. And I think it was a really great idea and it was just, Really interesting revisiting both of these uh, for very different reasons.
1: Some of the other films on the list actually, I, I I I don't, I don't want I won't reveal your secrets, but some of the other films on the list that, that you're still planning to do to kind of kind of scared me to watch. <laughs> so I, this seems like a pretty <laughs> pleasant way to spend a few hours watching these two films.
0: Yeah, leave those to us. Yeah, well, this is a nice little gift um, to our listeners, since this will be, our, I believe, our last episode of the year coming out closest to Christmas time. So you know, it's just
1: going to be hateful, on you know, violent, sadistic stuff for the rest of the year, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> A little break before we plunge back into the darkness, uh, for in 2023. Uh, but yeah, so Keith, is there anything else that you out there that you want to plug or give a heads up to? um, You know, for anyone who might be listening. No,
1: I mean, you do, you, you did a great job plugging all my stuff at the beginning of the show. I mean, I mean, um, the reveal is something. Is it thereveal.substack.com? It's where Scott and I put a lot of our energies. Uh, NextPictureShow.net is our is uh, where our podcast is, and and uh, I. I'm on Twitter as KFIP three thousand. I'm on there increasingly less these days, but I I do tend to post what I'm writing on there. So that's, uh, um, you know, it's a good place to catch up with me. I Guess if for as long as it lasts, and before it's swarmed by the most vile people uh, in the world. Uh, Anyway, that's a that's a negative note to end on. But yeah, thanks for having me on. This this was this was a lot of fun.
2: The death of Twitter is fine. It's not a negative thing. We can escape Twitter. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let it burn. We'll survive. We'll see. Yeah, if it doesn't if it doesn't burn down by the time this episode airs, definitely find Keith on there because you can get all of this information, uh, as well as links to all the new stuff coming out. Yeah, Keith, we appreciate you, Keith. Thanks oh, for
1: absolutely. being on. Yeah, so this, I, I will go listen to the Rob Zombie episode uh, after after this after we're done with recording. Well, maybe not right away, but you're, definitely oh in my. the next live. <laughs> <God.
2: laughs> <laughs> you're, yeah. You're,
1: Maybe give yourself a buffer before uh, before you dive into that one. And okay. that pretty nice.
0: That's one more <laughs> listen we can bump up for that one. Right, right. There we go. <laughs> Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark D'Otavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Kraus. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark D'Ottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening.